The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Dr. Edward Reichman now presents his lecture, If Maimonides Were Alive Today, the Rambam on Contemporary Jewish Medical Ethics. This morning, for our, our final session, we've had the opportunity to spend an extraordinary few days together, learning an immense amount uh, from each other uh, through this uh, magical National Jewish Retreat, uh, our final session on the interface of science and medicine and uh, Jewish law is devoted to one of the greatest figures in the history of Jewish medicine, and that is none other than the Rambam or Maimonides. Now indulge me for a moment. Who is this a picture of? The Rambam, correct? So your answer is, of course, this is Maimonides. This is a talk about Maimonides. This is a picture of Maimonides. The truth is, do we know if, in fact, this is really a picture of Maimonides? But be that as it may, uh, we'll get to that in just a moment, the Rambam, or Maimonides, has not only made his mark, he has made his stamp, if you will. Um, it is fascinating to see how many places across the globe Maimonides appears on stamps. And these are places that you would not exactly expect the Rambam to appear, including Micronesia, the Republic of Chad, Grenada, etc., etc. The, uh, the earliest depiction that we have of Maimonides uh, is actually found in a work in the 1700s, and it was first uh, brought to the public in the 1800s. We do not have a contemporary picture of Maimonides from the 1200s. Uh, and it is very, very questionable whether this image that we have been perpetuating for century after century as Maimonides is actually Maimonides. How many people remember the Machberet, that little book you used to write in, the blue, the blue book that had the picture of the Rambam in it? Yeah, so those of us, uh, those of us who remember that. Uh, fun, fun memories. Uh, and why, why, why is it unlikely uh, that we would have had a picture of the Rambam, uh, because the Rambam pr probably would never have had time to sit for a portrait. The Rambam was an extraordinarily busy man, and we actually have a remarkable uh, testimony to this. Uh, so the Chabad actually uh, has what's called Rambam Yomi, which is daily Rambam. Uh, and it's a wonderful uh, learning uh, program that you can finish learning uh, the text of the Rambam's Mishnah Torah over a few year, over a few year time. Um, we are not going to talk about the Rambam Yomi. We're going to talk about the Yom of the Rambam, the day of the Rambam himself. And in fact, there is a letter that he writes um, to a translator, Ibn Tibon. Now, the Rambam's work, we'll talk about his works in just a moment. Uh, one of the works the Rambam wrote was a philosophical work. Um, that philosophical work was very complex. It was written in Arabic, and a translator, Shmuel ibn Tibbon, wanted to translate it into Hebrew. Uh, so he, when he was working on the translation, he wrote Maimonides, and he said, I would like to come with, to your home in Cairo and discuss my translation with you. I mean, it's not translating a, a book on uh, uh, you know, a simple novel. It's a book of very, very deep, complex philosophy where literally every word could make a difference if mistranslated. So the Rambam responded to him with this letter. I'll read you a few, uh, or summarize for you, 
what, the, what this letter entails. He says that in the, in the very, very early morning, the Rambam was a, uh, was a physician for the king of Egypt. So in the very, very early morning, way before the crack of dawn, he would walk miles and miles in order to get to the palace of the king. He would spend a lengthy amount of time treating the king and the king's harem. After he returned home, he writes, I'm dying of hunger. I've had literally no time to eat. Waiting for me in my medical office are hundreds, if not thousands of people filling the porticos, he says. And he writes, Jews and not Jews. Those of significance, those of higher officials, presidents, and the like and lay people, those who are, are rich, those who are poor, and their common denominator is they're all waiting for medical consultation for the Rambam. And he writes that he was so exhausted during much of his consultation that his consultation was done on his side. He was laying down during much of his consultation and maybe being able to take a little food during the course of his, uh, of his day, consulting on many, many hundreds of patients that were, that were waiting for him. Then he would complete the consultations till late, late, late into the night. Then he would begin to write some of the books that we are now privileged to, uh, to learn many, many centuries later. His halachic writings include the Mishneh Torah. The Mishneh Torah is, uh, is probably the most well-known and classic. It, it, it's, uh, it's a book written about the entirety of Jewish law. And in fact, in the introduction to this work, the Rambam said that he would like this to a certain extent to replace the Talmud. That you would need to go and you wouldn't need to go through thousands and thousands of pages of the Talmud in complex analysis. Everything that you need to know, so to speak, is synopsized and, and organized in magnificent structure in this work called the Mishnah Torah. And in fact, this Mishnah Torah is learned extensively every single day in yeshivas across the country, is the substance of thousands and thousands of pages of commentary over the many centuries. The Rambam also wrote philosophical writings, and this is the Moranavuchim. You see a magnificent manuscript on the left-hand side from 1347, which is now in the Royal Library of Denmark. Um, and that is the work that Ibn Tibon wished to translate uh, that, that ultimately yielded that letter that we just read a moment ago. Uh, now, we, we don't have a picture of the Rambam from the Rambam's time, but we actually do have writings of the Rambam. Where do we have those writings from? We have them from a repository called the Cairo Geniza. How many people here are familiar with the Cairo Geniza? So just a handful of you are familiar. Uh, this is really something that you should go online, spend a few minutes to explore the Cairo Geniza, and I'll, and I'll explain why. Um, it is customary in the Jewish tradition that uh, when we have sacred writings, we don't, we don't destroy them, we don't discard them, we bury them, especially a Sefer Torah, obviously, but not even a Sefer Torah, but other, other scriptures, other writings, 
We don't, we don't, bury, we don't uh, destroy them, we bury them. Uh, and that is called Geniza. Geniza is, or Seamus, if you're familiar with the term Seamus, like if uh, a handout has the name of God on it, we don't, we don't throw it out, we, we try and, uh, and, and bury it actually, put it in, in this kind of Geniza. This, this Geniza has been going on, the concept of Geniza has been going on for many thousands of years. In the city of Cairo, there's a synagogue called the Ben Ezra Synagogue where they kept the Geniza, where people were, uh, deposited Geniza. And what did, they, what did they deposit there? They deposited there everything written in the Hebrew language, even if it wasn't sacred text. So included letters, included medical documents, included translations of things into Hebrew. And for some reason, they neglected to bury in the cemetery these documents. They actually deposited them in an attic in the Ben Ezra synagogue roughly from the year 800 onwards. And these documents stayed in that attic for a thousand years. And in that time period was Maimonides, uh, who I neglected to say his years, was 11, it's a debate whether he was born in 1135 or 1138, he died in 1204. Amongst those documents are the very handwritten documents of Maimonides. And what's extraordinary today in the, in the world of technology that we live uh, and, and it's a, uh, and I'll, I'll show you, this by the way is a picture of the Ben Ezra synagogue on the left hand side. This is just one of hundreds of thousands of documents and fragments from this repository of documents called the Cairo Geniza. And this is a picture of a man whose name some of you may be familiar with. His name is Solomon Schechter. You familiar with the Solomon Schechter uh, uh, schools today? So Solomon Schechter was a professor at, uh, at Cambridge University, and he's actually one of the people responsible for bringing the Geniza documents uh, to, to scholarship, to academic institutions. Um, it really reads like an Indiana Jones type of story. For those of you who are interested in more, than that, more there's a book, a very recent book called The Cairo Geniza and the Age of Discovery in Egypt, uh, which, is, which is an absolutely fascinating read. So, um, so amongst those documents, uh, we actually find documents of the Rambam himself. Uh, and here is one such document which reflects on the training of Maimonides. Now, Rambam himself trained to be a physician. We have no idea how he trained to be a physician. Well, the assumption is he didn't go to medical school. There were no medical schools at that time in Egypt. Uh, the assumption also uh, um, is that he trained by apprenticeship. Apprenticeship was the common way of training, meaning you would study, you would be autodidactic, you would teach yourself how to become a physician, you would learn the texts, and we'll talk in a moment what texts would they have been learning in this period of time, uh, and then you would apprentice with other physicians. Now, we do not have a specific reference to Maimonides himself studying, but we do have this remarkable document, which comes from the Cairo Geniza. And in this document, it says, it's a letter from a man who's named Meir Ibn al-Khamadani, uh, and he's writing to ask if Maimonides uh, would allow his son to apprentice with him to practice medicine. Now imagine, you know, imagine apprenticing with the, with, with the Rambam, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I practice emergency medicine. I get calls all the time from, from uh, people saying, you know, can my son or daughter come shadow you in the emergency room? Um, so no offense to me, but I'd much, much rather apprentice with the Rambam than, uh, than with me. Um, and he actually writes, he says, uh, I dare apply to him only because he heard that Maimonides' nephew, who was shadowing Maimonides to learn medicine, had now moved on. 
and was no longer uh, with the Rambam. So he asked if his own son could apprentice with the Rambam. And he says, I'll pay you a lot more than your nephew did. And uh, the, unfortunately, we don't have the follow-up letter of whether the Rambam said yes or not. So that, that, uh, that we do not have. We also do not have the library of Maimonides. Well, we have some of his own writings. We don't know what he kept in his library. Now, it would be amazing to know what that man had in his library. Um, and, uh, and in fact, when... When you ask people today in the uh, in the Jewish world if there's if there's one person you know and, and they often ask this at, uh, at college interviews or uh, graduate school interviews if there's one person in the history of the world that you'd like to speak to, go back in history and have a conversation with them, which which person would that be? Many people answer Maimonides. They'd like to speak to Maimonides. Uh, many people are fascinated by how how much this one man was able to accomplish in his in his lifetime. We do not have his library, but we do have some libraries contemporary with the Rambam. So here we have, from the Cairo Geniza, uh, this is an article called Sifriato Shel Rofei B'Mitzrayim B'Meha Rambam. Um, this is a, a library of a, of a physician contemporary with the Rambam. And I just want to share with you, pull out one of the titles which existed uh, in that library, which is exactly the time of the Rambam. This is the original title and, and transliterated. Uh, it's Il Molidin Lechet Ashkar. It's in Arabic. And in Hebrew is translated Hanoladim Lechet Chodoshim. So there was an entire volume in this library called Children That Are Born in the Eighth Month of Gestation. 1200s. What is this talking about? So if you, you, you get a hint what it's talking about from the works of the Rambam himself. The Rambam, in his Mishnah Torah, in the Laws of Circumcision, writes about the eighth-month baby. Is anyone here familiar with the eighth-month baby in Jewish literature? One, one, one or two of you, I'll explain. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating uh, uh, chapter in, in halachic history. So the Rambam writes, Mi shenolad b'chodesh hashmini, a child who is born in the eighth month of gestation, if he was fully developed, he's considered a fully formed fetus. Um, and it's a seventh month, it's considered a seventh month baby who, who's sustained in the uterus a little longer than seven months. And you are allowed to touch that baby on Shabbos. You'll understand what I'm saying in just a moment and it's not considered like a stone. Now, what does that mean? What does this all mean? So in order to, to know what the Rambam is talking about, I'll share with you what was understood in medical history at this time, and why you find a volume of that in, in a library contemporary with the Rambam, and why the Rambam himself is addressing this in his, in his uh, halachic uh, um, work. It, the belief was, and this is not unique to the Jewish tradition, this you will find in the works of Hippocrates, you'll find in the works of physicians, secular physicians, contemporary with the Rambam, they believed that women would only give birth to healthy children in the seventh month of gestation and in the ninth month of gestation. Uh, and they believed that any child born in the eighth month of gestation would never survive. What are the legal ramifications, which they talked about in the rabbinic literature? If the baby was thought to never be survived, let's say you have a baby born in eighth month gestation and uh, is, is sick on Shabbos, 
and needs intervention on Shabbos, and you have to violate Shabbos in order to try and save that baby. So if it's a seventh-month baby who's considered viable, you're absolutely allowed to violate Shabbos. If it's a nine-month baby, of course you're allowed to violate Shabbos. What if it's an eighth-month baby? So the Rambam says, and others too, and this is discussed extensively in rabbinic literature throughout the centuries, that if you know with certainty that this baby was born in the eighth month of gestation, it is considered like a stone, and it is prohibited to violate Shabbos to preserve the life of that baby. They believed that there was no chance an eight-month baby would ever survive. Now the question is, where did this notion evolve? When did this notion change? Uh, so they, they believed, this, there's many different theories. Some say it's a mathematical theory based on the numbers of gestation associated with death. Some say it's a planetary astronomical theory that each, each month of gestation was associated with a different planet. The eighth month of gestation was associated with Saturn. Saturn was associated with death. And there was no way that a child born under Saturn would ever be able to survive. Um, be that as it may, fast forward to the 20, 20th, 21st century, we know fully well that if a child is born in the seventh month, it can survive, and additional gestation is additional chance of survival. So born in the eighth month will have a better chance of survival in the seventh month. Um, so what do we do today? If we know a child's born in the, uh, in the eighth month, do we not violate Shabbos today? So the answer is no, we do violate Shabbos, rest assured. Rest assured uh, that we do violate Shabbos for, uh, for people who are, who are in the eighth month. But even the Rambam himself um, addressed this issue. And what kind of sources did they find uh, to study? Like, what would the, what would the Rambam uh, have studied uh, as, uh, to, to be a physician? So we actually find in that Geniza, those many thousands of fragments uh, in that Geniza, uh, there was a physician whose name was Haskell Isaacs. Thank you so much who is an Iraqi Jewish physician, and he, uh, he went through the Cairo Geniza, and I'm sure every, everyone here owns this book because it's so popular, uh, Medical and Paramedical Manuscripts in the Cambridge Geniza Collections. Everybody? Everybody? So, so what he did is, uh, is he went through the entire Geniza, which is thousands and thousands of fragments, and pulled just the medical documents. Now, keep in mind the Geniza is Hebrew. This is not stuff written in Latin or written in, in Arabic. This is only Hebrew, which means that these are works either written by Jewish physicians, authored by Jewish physicians, or more commonly, to be honest, classic works of medicine which were translated into Hebrew or written in Judeo-Arabic, which means they were written in the Arabic language but Hebrew letters so Jews could read it easier, um, and dealt with medicine. Now, if you look, it's fascinating. Who are the two, two of the major characters that you find? If you look in the index for this book and you look under the, the word Galen, you will find there are hundreds of references to Galen, hundreds of manuscripts of Hebrew Galen. Galen you may not be as familiar with, but you, you're likely more familiar with the next person, Hippocrates. If you look up Hippocrates, in the Cairo Geniz, in the index of this book, you will find hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts of, of Hippocrates. Now, if you were studying, keep in mind, hip, do you have any idea when Hippocrates lived, by the way? Anybody know when Hippocrates lived? Fifth century before the Common Era. Do you know when Galen lived? Galen, another famous figure. First century of the Common Era. To put it into a Jewish context, Galen lived the same time as Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the, uh, the redactor of the text of the Mishnah. They were contemporaries. So Jews, and not just Jews, 
the entire secular world, if you, went, if you did any medical training, and there were medical schools, by the way, in Italy, starting in the 9th and 10th century, and you were a medical student in Italy in the 9th, 10th century and onwards, you were studying Hippocrates, you were studying Galen, you were studying Aristotle. Those were like the three major figures which comprised most of your medical education. And the Rambam himself, while we know his halachic writings, his Jewish legal writings, we know his philosophical writings, some of you may not realize that he wrote extensive or expansive medical writings. Many, many writings the Rambam wrote. He wrote them in Arabic. Uh, so they were inaccessible for quite a long period of time. And to give you an idea of the relationship of Rambam to the training of medicine, what did he write a commentary on? I apologize that this, this, uh, this, I don't think it works, but I'll, I'll read it to you and tell me if you can tell me who this is. He says, Perush Lepirke Avukrat. He wrote a commentary on the works of Avukrat. Who is Avukrat? Hippocrates. Rambam wrote a lengthy commentary on Hippocrates. We all know Hippocrates from the Hippocratic Oath, um, which means that Rambam writing in the 1200s, that was medicine, Hippocratic medicine. You know, from 1700 years earlier, that's what they were writing. Here he writes, for example, one of the passages he writes, Misha hayamin ha'ubrim zachar, He's writing an excerpt from Hippocrates. What is that Hippocrates? He says that it's, it's a comment on gender determination. How do you determine if a child's going to be a female child or if a child's going to be a male child? So he says Hippocrates writes that if a child is born on the right side of the womb, it's going to be a male child. If it's born on the left side of the womb or conceived or gestated on the left side of the womb, it is going to be a uh, female child. And so he writes... Um, I have no idea where he got this. This is an absolute, absolutely crazy notion. Uh, he said maybe he got it from Nivua. Maybe he got it from a prophecy because there's no humanly possible way that that would be the case. Uh, or maybe he, maybe he developed it or, or uh, conceived of the idea from a heckish, from a uh, philosophical analysis. Um, and, he, and he says if it's, from, if it's from that type of analysis, then it's uh, heckish nifla. It's, it's quite a remarkable uh, analysis or remarkable is really not the word. It's euphemistic for saying it's ridiculous, meaning I don't I don't believe it to, to be correct. And he said this in uh, in a number of different uh, a number of different cases, uh, and he didn't uh, pull any punches. Uh, his commentary on Hippocrates, and by the way, he wrote a commentary on Galen as well. Are lengthy, lengthy commentaries, very sophisticated analytic commentaries about what was known in medicine at that particular time. These writings are available. They exist today. They've been translated into Hebrew. They've been translated into English. You can actually purchase translations in your local Jewish bookstore. You probably never noticed it. Um, but the, uh, there is a, a, an extraordinary uh, academic translation of the medical works of the Rambam uh, being completed now by a, a person named Cheret Boss. This is just one, one volume. There are dozens and dozens of volumes. For those of you who have any academic interest in the medical works of the Rambam, this current translation is really the definitive translation. Uh, does anybody here have a, uh, a copy of the Maimonides Prayer or have given it to a, uh, a relative? So we have a couple of you. Well, I hope you kept your receipts because the Rambam did not write that prayer. People think, like, this is the prayer of Maimonides, so the Rambam wrote that. In fact, the Rambam didn't write it at all. 
there was a physician named Marcus Hertz, who you see is depicted here, who wrote a prayer in the style of Maimonides, uh, imagining what Maimonides would have written as a prayer to to, uh, to, uh, um, to before treating patients. Um, and it's interesting, he, he even said uh, that he was writing it and attributing it to this physician. He didn't say explicitly he had written it, but uh, you know, like the old mimeographs, you know, by the time you mimeograph so many times, like the top, top line is left off. So ultimately the top line got left off and people didn't realize that it really wasn't the prayer of the Rambam. And for centuries it's been, uh, it, it's been uh, pawned off as a, uh, as a, as a uh, prayer of the Rambam, which unfortunately it is not. Um, now what if the Rambam were alive today? I mean, we could so gain from his wisdom in so many of the issues that we are dealing with in the, in the 21st century. Uh, there's a very famous passage of Rav Yashaber Soloveitchik, one of the great uh, Talmudic minds and uh, philosophical minds of the late 20th century, where he writes about his experience, um, his ahistoric experience of learning a, a Talmud class. And he talks about sitting in front of his students talking about a Talmudic passage from thousands of years ago, and in walks in Rashi, the great commentary from the 11th century. And he begins to dialogue with them. And then they're having a debate and they're fighting, and then the Rambam walks in, knocks on the door, said, I'd like to engage in this discussion as well. And then after a few minutes, after he analyzes thoroughly with the debate with Rashi and, uh, and the Rambam, in walks Rav Soloveitchik's grandfather, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik. Uh, who was not alive at that time, of course, who was one of the greatest minds in all of Talmudic history. And they all engage in discussion together. We, in a sense, are engaging in discussions with Rambam of the past. We are bringing Rambam to our debate, to our discussion, to our analysis of some contemporary issues in medicine in order to see what the Rambam has to say. So please look in the back as the Rambam comes in the door. We welcome him. Preventive, we will start with preventive medicine. We'll start from the, the uh, pre-medicine, if you will. What does the Rambam have to say about preventative medicine? For those of you who can't read the cartoon, it says the top doesn't come off, it's preventive medicine. An ounce of prevention, of course, is worth a pound of cure. So what do we know about the Rambam in preventive medicine? The truth is, the Rambam wrote extensively about preventive medicine. Now, it's interesting. In the medical writings of Rambam, and there are many, many medical writings of Rambam, you will not find any halachic discussion. His, his medical writings are pure medical, nothing Jewish in his medical writings. However, in his halachic writings, you will find some references to medicine. And here you find in Hilchot De'ot, the Rambam writes, and this is a really a remarkable passage, says, Ho'el v'heyos aguf bariv since the, the, uh, the body is, is the, the ultimate, is, is the body to be complete and whole and healthy. And that is midarche Hashem, that's the ways of God, that's the ultimate desire of God for it to be that way. Um, and it's impossible to understand the ways of God, to service God, to pray properly, to learn properly, if you are in a state of illness. Therefore, one should distance themselves from anything which causes harm to their body. And he goes on to, uh, to share an extensive list of how you should live your daily life, how many hours of sleep you should get, what foods you should eat, what eat foods you should refrain from. 
Uh, and and uh, interestingly, the Rambam says you should try and get eight hours of sleep a day. And furthermore, he goes on to promise that if you follow his guidelines, his, his, uh, his health recommendations, he said, whosoever trains himself in these ways which are pointed out here, I assure him that he will encounter no sickness in all of his days, and he will live or die, he will die in old age. He will need no doctor. His body will be sound, well-preserved throughout his life. Uh, but it's interesting. Keep in mind, the Rambam's writing in the 1200s. What is his exception to this? What is the caveat? Those unless... Um, unless his body has bad from its formation. What does that mean, his body is bad from its formation? So in Hebrew, it's ra mitchilas briaso. That means if he has some genetic, the translation today was if you have some genetic predisposition to illness, then I can't promise you that, uh, that my plan's gonna work for you. Uh, and, uh, and he also says, uh, which is relevant for us today in the, uh, in the, in the ho hopefully soon, completely post-COVID era, I also can't promise you that my plan will work im tavo makat dever, if a pandemic hits. If a pandemic hits, I cannot promise you that my, my health plan will, will protect you and will save you. Uh, now keep in mind, you know, we, we are not the only ones who live through pandemics. Pandemics was, was really a, uh, a, a daily, a weekly, monthly occurrence throughout the pre-modern era before antibiotics and before vaccinations. Um, there are those, even to this very day, who look to the, re the uh, recommendations and suggestions of the Rambam and try to apply them to their daily diet. And you have uh, the life-transforming diet, health and psychological principles of Maimonides, using Maimonides' works to, to, um, to eat regularly and safely and healthily today uh, in the hopes that they will merit that, uh, that promise of, uh, of long life. Uh, and here there's an article on the upper left-hand side, seated at the Shabbos table with Rashi and Rambam, uh, extracting the nutritional uh, writings of both of those great figures uh, and applying it to a, uh, to a cookbook. What about Rambam and his approach to the patient? So you have an article from The Lancet, which is the equivalent to the New England Journal of Medicine uh, here in the United States. And in the Lancet of 2001, the, the article is entitled Moses Maimonides' Contribution to the Biopsychosocial Approach in Clinical Medicine. Using Rambam as a physician today as the ideal way to interact with a patient. And the conclusion was, the medical writings of Maimonides are a rich repository to gain an appreciation of the biopsychosocial foundation of clinical practice uh, and, uh, and we should effectively adopt the Maimonidian approach today in the 21st century and how we deal with patients. What would the Rambam say about uh, dissection in medical school and autopsies? Uh, so the answer is, the, we don't have anything about the Rambam uh, writing about dissection. So one of the things that we have to keep in mind is we have to keep in mind the evolution of medical history as well. The Rambam was a physician. He trained as a physician, one of the best physicians of his generation. Why would he not write in his halachic writings, which cover every aspect of human existence from before life to after death, why would he not write about dissecting the human body and is there a halachic problem with dissecting the human body? So the answer is they weren't dissecting the human body in the times of the Rambam. They only started doing anatomical dissection. And this I have for you here 
uh, in the in the 1500s, and uh, and this we mentioned in one of our earlier lectures. This is the frontispiece of a classic work called uh, "The Fabric of the Human Body" um, by Andreas Vesalius, um, and we also pointed out that fascinatingly, and uh, not part of our discussion today, but in, in that classic work of medical history about dissection in the 1500s, Andreas Vesalius, who, who trained and, uh, and taught in the University of Padua, where there were many Jewish medical students at that time, um, in, in that work he includes not only Latin and Greek translations of his medical terms, he actually includes Hebrew language translation for some of his medical terms. So on the bottom right-hand side, we, and uh, we mentioned this in one of our previous lectures, I think you, you, you did you guess the uh, <laughs> haorti, right, which is what, what, what structure do you think haorti would be? The aorta, that's correct. Now let's turn to what the Rambam would say about some other fascinating uh, uh, topics in the 21st century. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll start with one of the most complex cases, which uh, I think we mentioned very briefly at the end of our session uh, uh, yesterday. Um, this probably is one of the most complex cases in, the medical, in all of medical halachic literature. A uh, landmark case happened about uh, 50 years ago. Um, and, uh, and the case was as follows. An Orthodox Jewish family uh, gave birth to conjoined twins a set of conjoined twins. Those twins were joined at the heart. Now, uh, conjoined twins can be conjoined at any parts of the body. Uh, so, so does anyone know why they're called Siamese twins? So they're called Siamese twins because the most famous set of conjoined twins were uh, twins called Chang and Eng Bunker, who were exhibited by, uh, by Barnum and Bailey Circus who I think is now being resurrected. It closed for a little while. I think Barnum and Bailey Circus is, is, make, is making a comeback. Um, and you see a picture, actually, of Chang and Eng Bunker on the, on the upper right-hand side. They were thoracopagus twins. Uh, they were conjoined uh, by the thorax. Um, but only a superficial part of their liver and, uh, and, and the skin and the ribs, but they weren't joined by the heart. They were actually offered to be separated later in life. They refused to, refused to be separated. Um, and, uh, and also fascinatingly, they each married separate women and had separate families. Anyone want to try and figure out how that happened? I don't really know. Uh, um, and uh, there's actually a body cast of Chengeneng Bunker, which exists today at the uh, uh, at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. I don't know if anyone's here from the, uh, from the Philadelphia area. Um, fascinating. More, there's much more to discuss about, uh, about Siamese twins from a halachic perspective. But uh, we're going to focus on one aspect. So there was a case uh, of these twins that, that shared one heart. And the doctors determined as follows, that th these children would never survive if, if left alone. Intervention would be needed in order to, to, uh, to take the heart and transplant that heart from two twins into one twin. And by necessity, they would have to sacrifice the life of one of the twins. That's the only, only option. So either do nothing, be passive, both die, intervene, sacrifice, and sacrifice the life of one, save the life of the other. So the question is, is this procedure murder or is it Hatzalus nefashos, is it saving? Are you saving the one twin? That's your focus of the procedure? Or are you murdering the other twin? And obviously, 
murder is uh, is, is quite a severe uh, quite a severe prohibition, and we are not allowed to murder uh, even even for the sake of saving human life. You're allowed to do everything for pikuach nefesh, but you're not allowed to murder for pikuach nefesh. So what were they supposed to do in that case? So what they did in that case is they went to Rav Moshe Feinstein. And Rav Moshe Feinstein, and by the way, this is C. Everett Koop, and uh, we mentioned him the other day, C. Everett Koop on the bottom right-hand side, that's your uh, connection. C. Everett Koop uh, was the Surgeon General at that time. They went to Rav Moshe Feinstein, and Rav Moshe Feinstein invoked Maimonides. And this is how he believed in a certain sense Maimonides would adjudicate this issue. Maimonides said, and, and it's not a direct application, it's really an extrapolation from the works of Maimonides. He said that Maimonides said that, that and, and we discussed this a little bit in our abortion session also, that uh, you are not allowed to perform an abortion except in a scenario where the fetus is considered pursuing the mother. The fetus is the rodef, if you will, the pursuer of the mother. Then and only then are you allowed to, to sacrifice the fetus. Um, and we said, uh, when the baby's head comes out, you're no longer allowed to sacrifice the, the baby. It's only in utero you're allowed to sacrifice the baby, but not when the baby comes out. Even though the baby's still, still threatening the life of the mother, you're not allowed to, uh, to sacrifice the baby. So we said, and one, one opinion is based on Maimonides, and a very famous opinion perpetuated for, for a thousand years through halachic history, that the reason is there's an asymmetry of the status of life between the mother and the child in utero. They both have a status of life, but the mother's life is, is more secure, is, uh, is, is established. The baby's life in utero is not. It's a lesser status of life. That's what allows us to t sacrifice the life of the baby. How did, how did Moshe Feinstein apply that here? He asked the question to see Everett Koop. One question he asked him, and he said, you better make sure 100% that you know the answer to this question. And the question was, are these two babies equal in terms of their uh, claim to this heart, if you will? Meaning, if I put the heart in one body or the other body, it doesn't make a difference? And, or, if uh, is one baby primary, and that baby really owns, so to speak, the circulation, and the other baby is like a parasitic baby or of a lesser status. And he said, if these babies have equal claim on this heart, there is no way you can perform this operation. You can't, sac you can't kill somebody to save somebody else. However, if one of the babies is primary and one of the babies is secondary, then we can invoke the, the, uh, the laws of the Rambam and, uh, and we can perform this operation. And uh, and Koop came back to me and said that it's absolutely the case that one of them is primary, one is secondary. The second baby, I'm not even sure, would survive if we transplanted the heart into that baby. The primary baby is, uh, is, is, has, has a much, much higher rate of success. And it is reported that uh, they, had, they waited for Moshe to pask in this issue. It was a few days of intense deliberations. Uh, and C. Everett Koop is quoted as saying, we are not doing anything until this little man on the Lower East Side makes his decision. Uh, and, uh, and he made his decision, Moshe Feinstein, and he decided that it would be halachically permissible to perform the operation. Um, and they performed the operation. The, so the operation itself was a success, but unfortunately, a few weeks later, the, uh, the surviving child died of post-op complications. Yes, it was an Orthodox Jewish family. Um, just from a Chabad uh, perspective, uh, uh, a number of years later, this is 2009, uh, C. Everett Koop, who was at Dartmouth, 
uh, at the end of his career, he passed away a few years ago, uh, met with the students of, uh, of the Chabad House of, uh, of Dartmouth and recounted for them the story of his interaction with Rav Moshe in his psaac about this very famous case. Uh, would it be uh, possible to apply the psaac of the Rambam to this case, to this scenario? Uh, we talked a little bit in the course of our discussions about, about infertility. Um, one of the ramifications of, of infertility treatments is multi-gestational pregnancies. Uh, so uh, doctors either implant multiple embryos into a woman's body or they give drugs to stimulate ovulation. And when you, when you give drugs to stimulate ovulation, women can ovulate four, five, six, seven, eight, nine eggs, all of which can theoretically be fertilized. So you have cases of women who are pregnant with multiple fetuses. And the question is from a halachic perspective, is it permitted to perform an abortion? in those cases, and the, the, the euphemistic term in the medical literature is selective reduction. Can you selectively reduce? Uh, because if you don't, and let's say you have nanotuplets, right, which is nine, it's gonna be very complicated for these children. There's not enough room for them. They're not gonna be able to grow. All of them will be affected. They, they'll have physical debility, they'll have, um, very likely have mental, uh, mental disability as, as a result of the, uh, the decrease to, uh, nutrition in these multigestational pregnancies. So can you perform selective reduction? So some people invoke the same principle of the Rambam of Rodef. The only problem here is who is the Rodef and who is the Nirdef? Who is the pursuer and who is, who is being pursued? So when you have nine babies in the womb, they, they are all being equally Rodef each other. They're, they're, they're uh, reciprocal, uh, reciprocal uh, pursuance. Their redifa is, is reciprocal. So it's not so clear whether you, whether you could apply that. Um, it's also not so clear in terms of uh, what the Rambam would say about the status of the human embryo outside the body. We said you can't sacrifice a, a fetus in utero unless the fetus is a rodef, unless the fetus is a pursuer. What about a uh, fertilized embryo? This is a um, an embryo, and you see that little cluster of cells on the, on the uh, right side of that embryo are stem cells. Those are, those are the, the famous embryonic stem cells. So would the Rambam say that you couldn't uh, destroy an embryo in order to harvest those stem cells? Um, now, if, if the embryo was not destined for implantation anyway, so the, the Rambam would probably say it would be permitted to, to harvest those, uh, those stem cells. Most rabbinic authorities today say it would be permitted to harvest those embryonic stem cells. We don't consider the human embryo outside the body to have a full status of human life. We talked about genetics in a number of different ways in the course of our sessions here. I want to share with you what the Rambam might say about one aspect of genetics, which is a very important aspect of genetics, and that's the notion of disclosure. So many of us are undergoing genetic tests. Many of us are known to have genetic diseases. None of us, are, uh, uh, none of us is perfect, and, uh, and we all have some varying aspects of disease predisposition or actual disease. So the question is, at what stage, if any, is one required to disclose the existence of a genetic disease to somebody else? Or maybe you never have to disclose genetic information to anybody else. So if someone is found to be a carrier of breast cancer gene, for example, someone's found to be a carrier of Tay-Sachs, which is, uh, doesn't impact the individual per se, but could impact others in terms of, of progeny, of having children, are you obligated to disclose this information, for example, to a future spouse? 
right? You're, 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 uh, you're dating and you, and you know you have certain conditions. Do you have to disclose those? Do you not have to disclose those? Very complicated issue. So the Rambam says in, in his discussions about lo tamod al damriecha, the Torah says, uh, and we, we discussed this with respect to organ donation, don't stand idly by as the blood of your brother is being shed. We talked about, you know, you have to take risks in order to save somebody's life. You know, maybe you should donate blood, you should donate bone marrow, you should donate a kidney. You know, don't stand by as the blood of your brother is being shed. But the Rambam extends that or expands that to include don't stand by in, in, uh, even in financial transactions. If you know someone's about to make a terrible business deal and they're going to lose millions of dollars, um, you have an obligation to not stand idly by when this person's about to make that kind of transaction. And this is directly applied to, the, to people who have, uh, let's say you know um, a situation where, where uh, uh, someone would benefit from knowing information in a, in a future marriage. Now, it doesn't mean that the marriage won't continue. It just means the information needs to be known in order to make a proper decision. So how this is applied today when there's so many different medical conditions uh, is, is a matter of, of, of discussion and a matter of debate. But that's how the Rambam would have, uh, would have weighed in. Plastic surgery, I cannot imagine the Rambam would have, would have foreseen the extent of, uh, of plastic surgery today. Uh, what would the Rambam say about plastic surgery? So there's a, uh, uh, the, the, one of the first responses in, in the 20th century about plastic surgery was presented to Rav Moshe Feinstein, who in turn invoked the Rambam in terms of his ability to, to make his, his rendering this decision. What was the case? Uh, this goes back to the 1970s, probably 1960s, where a young Jewish woman wanted to have rhinoplasty, uh, which in those days was, was one of the only cosmetic surgeries. Rhinoplasty, otherwise known as a nose job. Um, and he said that, I mean, so a simple analysis of the rabbinic literature would say this woman is healthy, could live her entire life. It's not going to impact her whatsoever from a physical perspective. Uh, surgery is risky. And even those days, it was more risky. You have to undergo general anesthesia. There's a scalpel. There's a possibility of infection. A lot of bad things could happen. Maybe you should say it's outright prohibited. And you're not allowed, you're not allowed to, to cause harm to somebody else. You can't hit somebody. You can't strike somebody. Now, of course, we're going to allow a surgeon to, uh, to open up the abdomen to remove the appendix, which is infected, because you're accomplishing refua. You're accomplishing healing. Here, what healing are you accomplishing? So, so first of all, there are two aspects of this were important. Uh, one is related to our Rambam discussion. One not so much related to our Rambam discussion. One is the importance of a mental health analysis in this equation. And Rav Moshe introduced the notion that this woman really suffered from serious psychological disease from her self-perception. She probably had what we would call body dysmorphic syndrome today. So when she looked in the mirror, she couldn't, uh, she couldn't tolerate her presence in the mirror. It was to such an extent where it literally impeded her daily function. So he said, you know, that we have to consider. That's something we really need to consider, whether it's halachically permissible. But he says, I still have to get over the issue of chavala. You're not allowed to cause bodily harm. Our, bo our bodies, we'll see in a moment, our bodies don't belong to us. So we, we can't cause bodily harm. So there he invoked the Rambam. And the Rambam says, um, and I'll just, I'll just uh, uh, synopsize it for you. He says, you're not allowed to strike someone or cause bodily damage, torts, or harm. 
um, man to man or woman, etc., etc. Derech nitzayon. And some say derech bizayon. So he qualifies the prohibition of causing harm, and this is extremely important and applied to many different areas. The prohibition of harming someone is only if you're doing it for detrimental purposes. Derech bizayon is, is in, a, in a disgusting or desecrating or degradating way. Derech nitzayon is in the course of fighting with somebody. You know, and that's how you strike them. You're boxing with someone, and you hit someone in the face, and you cause a facial fracture. That's, that's an isser of chavala. But if you're doing it for a positive purpose, if the ultimate purpose of your wounding is for a positive, positive result, then the Rambam would allow that. And based on that interpretation of the Rambam, Rav Moshe said, he would allow this because this was most certainly a positive purpose. How that would apply to the whole gamut of plastic surgery is obviously a matter of, uh, of discussion uh, based on, on different procedures. And by the way, the same thing applies for living organ donation. So you're allowed to undergo surgery to help yourself Right, because that's refua for you. But are you allowed to undergo chavala, to undergo wounding, to have a surgeon with a scalpel open your abdomen to take your kidney to give to somebody else? You might violate the prohibition of chavala, the prohibition of wounding. So here again, what would the Rambam have said? The Rambam would have said, this is not derech nitzayon or derech bizayon. This is not in a uh, degrading fashion. This is in a positive fashion. This is, this is clearly extraordinarily positive results. Uh, of, of saving the life of another human being. <clears throat> what would the Rambam say about selling organs? Selling organs, uh, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people. There are over 100,000 people in this country that are in need of organs, kidneys, livers, hearts, etc. We, we discussed over our retreat a number of times the issue of, uh, of organ donation. Um, the, the issue is, to, to whom does the body belong? And the Rambam says, so for example, you know, selling organs, um, I don't know if you guys saw this case, a, uh, this man wants his wife's kidney back. This is a man who was married for a number of years, he gave his wife a kidney, now they're divorcing. So in the divorce proceedings, he says, you know, so I want the house, I want the pool, I want the car. Oh yeah, yeah, the kidney, I want that too. I want my kidney back. Um, so the, the question is, to whom does the kidney belong? So the Rambam says that a person is not allowed to uh, admit to performance of a capital crime. You can, only, you can only convict someone of a capital crime by, by testimony of two witnesses. Let's say the, per the person admits. You know, he gives a confession. You see on, on all the TV shows, the person gives a signed confession that he committed a crime. Do, do you, uh, can you convict that person? So the Rambam says, under no circumstances can you, you, you convict a person on, uh, on a confession. You need to have two, two witnesses. Why? Because maybe this person's depressed, and he's admitting to this crime in order for, for the judicial system to accomplish his objective so he doesn't have to take his own life, the judicial system will, will take his life. And there are many people who run into to fire and will commit acts of violence so that the police will, will, will basically you know, shoot at them, and they, they can basically accomplish suicide uh, with other people's assistance. So the Ramam said it's absolutely prohibited to do that. And, and um, the Radbaz, in, in, in his commentary in interpreting the Rambam, makes the following. Uh, following comment. He says, what's the reason the Rambam says this? Because, Because a person doesn't have a right to commit suicide. A person doesn't own their own body. 
they are just baileys or guardians of their body. And as a result, um, they, they can't, uh, can't do harm to it. So that impacts your ability to sell organs. Maybe you can't sell something that really doesn't belong to you. Uh, but you can receive compensation for lost wages, for, uh, for time out of work, etc. but you technically can't, uh, can't receive compensation for, uh, for the organ which belongs to you, which it doesn't. What would the Rambam say about COVID-19? Lo ta'amod al-damrecha. He said, you have to take risks. So I, I, I uh, thought about the Rambam myself as an emergency medicine physician um, when I was faced with treating COVID patients with a very high fatality. And I was debating, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. I was debating, you know, should I be taking that risk walking into an emergency room filled with COVID patients, uh, many, many, many of whom were dying. Uh, and I have my own uh, medical issues to deal with as well. Uh, and that's the Rambam discusses how much risk a person has to take in order, in order to, save, uh, to save a life. And, and you have to take limited risk, but you don't have to take risk to literally put your own life at, uh, at, high, at, uh, at uh, possibility of loss of life. What would the Rambam say about triage? Another fascinating aspect of COVID. Um, let's say you had one, we had this in our hospital. You only have a limited number of respirators. We had to use hundreds of respirators to treat patients coming in on a daily basis. Let's say a person comes in uh, and there's five people come in, you only have one respirator. How do you get to determine which, which person goes on that respirator? How do you make decisions? Uh, so the Rambam, Rambam writes about this famous case. If you're surrounded by, uh, by, by robbers or thieves or murderers, and they say, give us one of you. Let's say there's 10 of you. And they say, give us one person, and we'll save all of you. Just one. Just one. That's all. Anyone. Makes, doesn't make a difference to me. So, so the Rambam says, you are not, and this, this is based on, on the Gemara as well, you are not allowed to give anybody over. Even if you will all die as a result, none of you will live. You are not allowed to give over someone for murder. Because you, in a sense, would be complicit with their murder. We can't make a decision. We are human beings. We can't make a decision which one of us would be, uh, would be better to give over than any other. So how are you going to make a decision about the, about the respirator? So the answer is, uh, there, you would analyze from a medical perspective who would benefit the most. And whether it's age or, or, uh, or uh, likelihood of survival or other comorbidities and illnesses, those are all things that would factor into the decision, not a, uh, not, not a simple matter at all. Would the Rambam have supported vaccination, or would he have been an anti-vaxxer? What do we think? I think he would have been a, a vaxxer. I think the Rambam would have been a vaxxer. I think it's very, very clear that he would have supported vaccination. Not, not even a question. The Rambam has extensive discussions about protecting your health, preventing disease. Uh, vaccination he would have clearly have, uh, have supported. What would the Rambam say about assisted suicide? Assisted suicide, which is legal in a number of states here in the United States and other countries. So the Rambam says, by the way, here's the cartoon. This woman is, is being accused for, uh, for killing her husband. And she says, it was assisted suicide, but he was too pig-headed to ask for it. <laughs> so the Rambam writes, if you kill somebody directly, then you could be sentenced to death in the court of law. 
if you strap somebody in front of a railroad, as obviously they didn't have railroads, but that's the equivalent. If you put somebody, you tie them to a railroad tracks, and you know the train is coming, then you actually can't be sentenced to death in a court of law. But you will be sentenced to death from above. You'll have to contend with God. But since you didn't directly cause that murder, you can't be sentenced to death. And the same was true. The same was true with, uh, with assisted suicide. Uh, you cannot be sentenced to death, but God, God will exact punishment. And our final question, what would the Rambam say about cloning? The answer is I have absolutely no idea. But if, <laughs> but if we did clone the Rambam, at least we would know what he looked like. <laughs> Thank you so much for the opportunity to join you for another amazing retreat. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.